Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and we have an exciting episode for you this week. But before we start, we need to spend a few minutes in Dr. Art Carden's economic imagination. Hello, I'm Art Carden from Sanford University's Brock School of Business. If you've been to a restaurant recently, you might have noticed a sign asking you to bus your own tables. This happened to me when I was in Boston recently, and to be quite frank, I was kind of puzzled because bussing tables is a standard, low-wage, entry-level job. Why aren't these jobs being done by people? Why are restaurants expecting people to bust their own tables? And what might minimum wages have to do with it? To find out more, stay tuned. Our guest today is Roger McKinney. Roger McKinney earned an MA in economics from the University of Oklahoma. He's the author of Financial Bull Riding and has written articles for Fee, the Mises Institute, and other publications. He's also the author of God is a Capitalist, Markets from Moses to Marx. And he is here today to talk about the, the book and also a topic that he covers in the book, which is envy and individualism. Roger, thanks for being with us. Yeah, glad to be here. So one, one of the biggest issues that you know I've always had with progressivism is it seems to me to be based entirely on envy. And yet I, I know these people have good hearts, so it can't quite be that simple, uh, and, and they, of course, would never say that because that would be admitting too much, I suppose. But, uh, you know, you've written this book, God is a Capitalist, and uh, I want you to give us a rough idea of what the book is covering and what, what you aim to to tackle and convince people of or kind of give them, you know, fuel if they're already kind of by if they already believe that God is a capitalist. Uh, but we are going to talk a little bit about one of my favorite chapters in your book, which was chapter two. Uh, which has to do with in individualism and envy. So, Roger, tell us a little bit about your book and what you set out to write. Uh, back in the 90s, I was reading Christianity Today, and that was before it was online, and it was still paperback, you know, the, the hard way to read it. And they were hardcore Marxists. And I, I had received a, my degree in economics a few years earlier, so I knew a little bit about economics. And I hadn't noticed it before until I'd gotten this degree, but I realized that Christianity Today was promoting hardcore Marxism, and I was shocked by it. And so I started uh, looking into it myself. I wanted to know where capitalism came from. And uh, actually, the uh, oh, that lady that Rothbard was associated with, um, Ayn Rand, yeah. I actually read, uh, I didn't read a lot of her books, but I read a, a yeah, I I had just stumbled across an article. I can't even remember the article. It was uh, just a short uh, editorial where she made the statement. The only thing I remember about it, can't remember the title even, was she said capitalism was the only moral system that had ever existed. And I never thought of it as a moral system. You know, it was just economics to me. And I thought, you know, how is this connected with morality? And that on top of Christianity Today promoting Marxism, I thought, well, you know, I need to look into this. Is uh, is Marxism really Christian economics, like so many people are saying, or 
is capitalism. And so I, I began this long search into the origins of capitalism, and I was stunned at how little at that time I could find. Of course, this was before the days of the Internet, so I was having to go to the library and look up stuff the hard way. And Using uh, real index cards with typewritten ink on it, right? Exactly. <laughs> And then then go find a book and read it and uh, <laughs> copy it and, and all that sort of thing. It was really hard work. Well, I, I did this off and on in my spare time for, for years. And then I began to realize, hey, you know, some of the stuff I'm I'm getting is uh, is pretty good and I need to start writing it down. And so I started doing that, just keeping uh, good notes. And then that eventually uh, turned into a, a book that I, I never really did anything with. But I was also challenged uh, with by people from the Mises Institute about libertarianism. I, I was really opposed to it at first, uh, the whole concept of uh, uh, government without a state. But then I actually began to think about what was in uh, the constitution of the original nation of Israel before the monarchy mm-hmm. that's depicted in the book of Judges, and I realized hey, that's pretty much what they're describing as a libertarian government because there was no human executive, no legislature to uh, write laws, and they only had judges. They had 613 laws from God. They weren't going to get any more. Nobody could invent any. And so they only had these judges to adjudicate these laws, which is pretty much what uh, people like Rothbard uh, wanted as a libertarian style of government and so I began to look into that a little more and then I then I stumbled across the uh, great theologians at the University of Salamanca Spain from the 16th century and how they basically uh, distilled the principles of capitalism from natural law and from the Bible and I was kind of blown away by that and and then later, you know, Hayek actually said, you know, these were the forerunners of Austrian economics. And I traced their influence to the Dutch Republic and realized that uh, after reading Wealth of Nations, realized that uh, Adam Smith had praised the Dutch as the nation that most fully implemented his principles of natural freedom. And so I realized that they were really the first capitalist nation and they had gotten their principles from uh, these Salamanca theologians. So I began to put all that together, and then I actually I stumbled across uh, a comment by Mises in one of his books where he mentioned Sheck's book on envy. And so I got that book, and I read it, and I was just, just blown away, and I realized, hey, this is where Christianity and economics really meet. That that's the heart of it. Yeah, what's the that's the full title of that book? Do you do you have that offhand? Uh, Envy: A Theory of Social Behavior by Helmut Scheck. Scheck, and that's spelled like S H O E C K, right? S S C H O E C K. All right, good. So that way people can look it up. You you quote extensively from from him uh, in in your chapter, uh, and I was I was quite thrilled to know that there was an analysis that wasn't you know just recent like that was an analysis from way back so yeah we'll, we'll get to that i'm sure so i'll let you continue well then uh I, you know after reading his book i saw that uh 
envy is really what uh, defines their institutions. And, th and that, that's the point of Sheck's book, is that envy defines our economic institutions. How a people respond to envy determines the types of institutions they create. And the institutions then determine what type of economic system you have. And so if you're, if you're very envious, uh, if your culture is very, very envious, then you will have institutions that uh, chop down anybody that, that stands out. And I put that together with what uh, Douglas North had written and some of the other people in the, uh, in the New Institutional School uh, they talk about how that the most robust and most ancient and enduring type of government is the extractive kind where you have a monarch who can be a, a general or a dictator, a Caesar or a pharaoh, and uh, he conquers an area and takes over, but he needs somebody to help him maintain his rule. And so he gathers around him this group of nobility that... Uh, he gives authority to plunder the people in exchange for their loyalty. And so they that's that's how they stay in power. And they have free reign to do pretty much whatever they want to with the people. And I often wonder, why would people put up with that type of government for so long? Why would it be the most robust uh, system of government in the history of mankind? And I think uh, Sheck answers that. It's because of envy. They need, the people need somebody to chop off the heads of any, any of the common people that stick up above the rest of them. And that's the role that the nobility uh, play in that type of government. And so people are happy because, as, as Sheck points out, people only envy those who are close to them in, in class, in circumstance, and they don't envy the nobility and, and the monarch because they're so far above them that they have no no hope of ever attaining that status. And so it's uh, uh, people, people in envious people in a democracy where they, where people have freedom and economic growth, envious people are not going to be happy. They're going to be miserable people. Uh, and Czech points this, uh, points that out, particularly in a place like India, where you have the class system and there's no possibility of moving up to a higher class or even moving down. So uh, you can blame your circumstances on your birth and you don't have to feel guilty about not being better because there's no chance you can be better. And so people are actually going to be happier in a stratified society like that than they are in a free and just society where people can be whatever they want to be. Yeah, well, it seems like envy keeps people from doing, being innovative and like you said, stand out above the crowd and it just, it disincentivizes progress, if you will. Yeah, that's a, that's was one of uh, Sheik's main points is that you have to have innovation in order to, uh, to have economic development. And, uh, but in an envious society, innovation gets chopped off at the knees. It, uh, people can't innovate. And not only does it take innovation, it takes capital uh, to implement that innovation, to, to make it a reality. And you can't achieve that either in an India situation because the idea is for everybody to be equal in wealth. And so if anybody achieves anything more than what other people have, they uh, the rest of society takes it away from them. 
but you can never have any progress. I, I think that's one of the problems with uh, Muslim societies at this point is because one of the one of the institutions they have is that whenever a wealthy person dies, that all of the wealth has to be evenly distributed among all of the descendants. And so that keeps the body from accumulating enough wealth to really do anything uh, with it and to invest. And, and of course, we know from economics, investment is the key to economic growth. And uh, if you don't have that, you're just not going to grow, not going to become wealthier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think you, you, you have a quote in the book, and I don't know if you're quoting someone else uh, because I didn't, I didn't note it down in my notes here, that the envious are those who are annoyed only at their friends' successes. So there's that social proximity factor that yeah. I think you drew that out. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because I don't really think about I, I don't spend a lot of my day thinking about what it was like in medieval Europe or medieval anywhere. Uh, and so, you know, you, you, we see all around us calls to tax the wealthy. I mean, right now they're pushing for a 70 percent marginal tax rate. I mean, it's being talked about and that kind of thing. And and the, it just seems like, oh, well, because our world is more global in terms of like we're all connected, it seems like it's just easy to be envious of anybody. But the disparity when when we're dealing with, you know, peasants and and uh, the monarchies and 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 things of that nature, that the proximity part was what was really hampering economic growth. It wasn't the envy of the people who the, the haves and the have between the haves and the have nots or the, the two caste system as it is in India. Uh, that was that was quite interesting to me. And you also talk about this myth of primitive innocence, that mm -hmm. there's this, this sort of sociological belief that uh, the, for lack of a better way of putting it, the men, the, the men in the jungle just relax all day and they have it better and we should just, that's what we should strive for because they don't seem envious. And that's completely wrong, you say. Oh, exactly, yeah. And that's, uh, Sheck spends a lot of time on that because he has done research into uh, anthropology of uh, uh, anthropologists have written about these primitive tribes and how much envy that they all experience. Like the Maori tribe in uh, uh, the Pacific, how that they have this practice where they, if, if anybody attains anything, it doesn't have to be greater wealth. Maybe some guy, some guy just marries one of the most beautiful women in the tribe then uh, the rest of the tribe just descends on him suddenly and takes everything he has and leaves him just destitute. The, the advantage to that for the tribe is that now he's dependent upon them for his very survival, for even his food and for mm. his family to survive. But also he, he doesn't oppose it because if he opposes it, then he won't get to take part in the next uh, raid against uh, somebody else. And they apparently do this on a regular basis so that everybody has uh, uh, equality on every level. And I, I was just reading about a missionary to some, uh, some, an Amazon tribe. And, uh, he was talking about, uh, he thought that they had an idyllic lifestyle because it didn't seem like they, they weren't worried about anything. You know, they just kind of laid around and if they felt like it and they got hungry, they would go hunting and, and the rest of the time, they just played games and had fun and and uh, did a lot of romance and stuff like that. Uh, there wasn't a lot of monogamy in the tribe. And 
he thought that was absolutely wonderful. But you found out that if anybody tried to improve things, uh, for example, he, he talked about Portuguese traders would come in and trade with this primitive tribe. And, and some of the tribe had learned Portuguese so they could could trade with them. And a few of the smarter young men uh, began to realize that the Portuguese were cheating them. And so whenever they would go to the tribe, uh, tribal leader or the council and complain that these Portuguese guys were cheating them, instead of being grateful, they would expel them. <laughs> oh, wow. Because they didn't want anybody in the tribe who was overly smart, who could figure things out that uh, nobody else could. And so anybody who achieved any kind of uh, success or uh, or fame or anything like that, they just got rid of them. And it kept the tribe very small, kept them all very dumb and <laughs> not much going on. And so they never had any improvement. But they also, an interesting neat thing is they brought somebody in to this tribe to teach them how to make canoes because they used canoes for fishing and moving up and down the river and stuff like that. Several times they would bring people in to teach them how to make their own canoes. And then they would leave and the, this tribe would never make canoes. They Now they wanted people to go and buy them canoes and give them canoes, but they didn't want to make any <laughs> for themselves. <laughs> it's very odd. But, but you could see even in that tribe that uh, envy played a big role in keeping them very, very poor and very, very similar in their poverty. Yeah. Well, yeah, you spent, I mean, it was a handful of pages on that. And I was just, I was just taken aback by the analysis that, that somehow that's good. I mean, there's something to be said of, you know, being communal with, with your people group, but at the expense of the, the group, you know, succeeding in ways that we would find, you know, admirable and, and so forth. Uh, it seems, <laughs> I mean, self uh, counter counterproductive. I should, I should say literally counterproductive. Um, well, and it's hard for us to understand uh, because we're the least envious culture in probably world history. And uh, so it's difficult for us to understand that type of thing. It's like one, one of my favorite, this, uh, descriptions of envy is the old uh eastern european story about the i don't know if you remember the story about the 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 peasant who gets visited by an angel mm -hmm. and he's supposedly been a very good peasant so this angel comes and is going to reward this peasant and uh, the angel says what would you like me to do for you and the peasant thinking out loud says well my neighbor has a goat and the angel says oh so you want me to give you a goat and the Peasants horrified. He said, "Heavens, no! I don't want a goat. I want you to kill my neighbor's goat." <laughs> yeah, you know, reading reading that sec section in your chapter there, that did actually make me think of that joke. That's uh, that. Uh, it's not really a joke. It's it's a joke, but it's it's funny on one hand. On the other hand, it's like, oh my goodness, this is exactly how people think out there. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you, we've been able to expunge envy from our way of talking about the world and doing politics and and so forth, but. You know, for for libertarians, we look up and we see all these all these politicians saying, "Well, we want to tax the wealthy, or we want to do this, we want to do that, whatever it is." It doesn't have to be people on the left per se, although they're the ones advocating a lot of social justice, which which has sort of absorbed the definition of envy. Uh, but it we've we don't talk about envy, but we certainly haven't gotten rid of it.
No, we haven't got rid of it. It's it's very present, and I'm I'm still collecting material on envia. I'm just reading a book now on uh, common morality in China, and they have a they have a chapter on envy there. They call it the red eye in uh, China, where we tend to call it the green eye here. Mm. In the uh, Middle East, they call it the uh, the evil eye. But uh, it's, one of the things I point out is that in China. Um, the person who causes envy is considered the evil person, not the person people doing the envy, envying. They are they tend to justify that and say that the person who has done wrong or who is an evil person who is the one who has inflamed envy by his actions. <laughs> oh wow! Is that is that for like a, a current commentary or is that like you know like earlier Chinese cultures? No, this uh, this was this is a. Symposium at the London School of Economics. Okay. And the book is a collection of the papers presented in that. It, it was done, I think, in 2008, something like mm-hmm. this. So it's, mm-hmm. it's recent. Yeah, okay. But, the, the, you know, the rest of the world with this expression, the evil eye, the evil eye is, I, I, I live some in the Middle East uh, a couple of times, and uh, I was always warned about the evil eye. And you were never supposed to, like, if, if you someone introduced you to a couple and they had a, a baby, it, you acted like the baby wasn't there. You, you never said the worst thing you could do is say something complimentary about the baby because it would it would give the other the couple with the baby the impression that you were envious of them for having that baby and that you might use some kind of magic to to kill the baby or make it sick. Uh, out of oh, my goodness. And so. Outside of the U.S., particularly in what we call the third world, fear of envy is, and, and envy itself is very, very common. And it's apparently common in Europe because I was trying to find the article, but I, I, st- I and I couldn't find it, but I stumbled across an article where a French guy had a business idea and he relocated to the U.S. because he said the envy in France was so bad that he couldn't... Uh, he couldn't start his business there. Hmm. So he decided to come to the U.S. to do it. So we don't suffer like the rest of the world does, but it seems to be growing as Christianity declines, uh, envy grows. Because like Sheck, Sheck, Helmut Sheck said that it was only the power of Christianity that enabled Western Europe to suppress envy enough to allow for innovation and economic growth, but he never really explained how Christianity did that. He said yeah. it, it was just the love your neighbor as yourself thing. But why did it take 1,500 years or 1,600 years for that to happen? Yeah, he doesn't, doesn't really explain that. And that's where I bring in uh, Larry Seidentop from uh, I think he's from Cambridge in his book Inventing the Individual. Because I think that's what he does. He explains how that came about. Yeah. Well, this might be a good time to transition to the to the topic of how how have societies attempted to battle envy? I mean, it just because we don't talk about it a lot today, there's sort of this collective action in some ways to either nourish it or suppress it or do something with it, whether inadvertently or just on purpose. Yeah. Well, in... Uh... Based on what I've known about from Sheck and from other people I've read on envy, 
uh, most cultures give into it. <laughs> That's what they're a lot like in India. The solution to it was the the caste system in uh, that Maori tribe. It was the regular raids on people. But um, yeah, in most cases, they just give into it. They tell pe- people who who actually achieve some type of success, they do their best not to flaunt it. For example, if you go, I spent some time in Morocco, and uh, if you go there, you, you don't see a lot of really big houses. And if you do, they're kind of plain on the outside. If you go inside, they're they're very ornate, very beautiful, very plain on the outside. The idea is to hide any kind of success uh, to keep from inflaming envy. But they have uh, people in third world countries have the same ethic as the so-called progressives in the U.S. and that they feel like the ultimate good is for everyone to be absolutely equal in terms of wealth and ability. And even and as Sheck points out, that even gets down to time use. And so they want equality of all of these things uh, among all of their people. And that is the ultimate goal. And whereas what made the the West different, Western Europe and the United States, is with the invention of individualism over 1,500 years, it took the church that long to to work it out. And uh, but when it finally happened, it allowed individuals to uh, to stand out and to succeed uh, without every everyone else trying. And crush them because of their envy. That doesn't mean people weren't envy, envious. It just meant that they suppressed it because they knew, they considered it evil. And of course, the, you know, the church is, that's one of the seven deadly sins, as, as Sheck points out. It's always been one of the seven deadly sins and the worst of the seven deadly sins. So up until the 20th century, we always taught against it. But then with the rise of progressivism, they absorbed it into their concept of justice, and we just don't talk about it anymore. Yeah, right. And, and we use it as a joke. And so people don't see it as a bad thing. Hi, it's me again, Art Carden. Earlier, I asked you if you've been expected to bust your own table at a restaurant. Now, this is no great inconvenience. It's really not that big a deal. It might be a little bit annoying, but quite frankly, we're all perfectly capable of taking care of our own dishes. The question, though, concerns where the busboys went. And I think one reason why there are fewer and fewer and fewer people in some low-skill occupations, like busing tables, for example, is minimum wages and labor market regulations. If you've been to Target or Walmart or somewhere like that and you've seen self-checkout, or if you've been in a parking garage and you have not interacted with a human being on your way in or out, these are consequences, I think, of rules and regulations that make it artificially expensive to hire labor and therefore more attractive to replace laborers with machines and to expect customers to do work that was previously done for them by people who were earning income. Now, again, this is not that big a deal. You know, for most of us, bussing our own table, is, it, it's no great imposition. We can do it. If we're going to get upset about it, then we just sort of need to grow up. But what we need to do, though, is use the economic imagination and look and ask, why don't we observe more people having opportunities to do this low-skill, low-wage labor and get their foot on the first rung of the job ladder. To get more practice with the economic imagination, visit libertarianchristians.com slash artcarded. And now, back to the episode. Yeah, it, it often, it's very funny to me that 
capitalism and free markets and libertarianism and all, people on our side of that sort of conversation seem to be identified as people who support or promote or enable greed. And yeah. yet the accusations don't seem to be don't seem to be thrown back at them that, well, if if indeed that's your best accusation of accusing us of something, maybe we're not maybe we're not aware of, which is possible, I suppose. Uh, do they not realize that what they have at least looks like envy? If for some reason they happen to be right and their their way of doing politics isn't envious, they, don't they realize it looks that way? That's often often my my thought on that. You talked about socialism, how it nourished envy and sort of set it loose. Could you describe what what you mean by that? Well, that was I actually got that from Sheck too. Uh, he, he talks about how uh, socialism is just envy uh, instituted. He talks about one of his best sections is on the uh, kibbutzim in Israel. Mm -hmm. They were supposed to be. Originally, they were supposed to be the ideal communist system where everything was totally equal and uh, in every way down to the point where they didn't even have individual clothes. They just threw all the clothes into a, a hamper and washed them. And then people first come, first serve. People just got whatever was available. And so, you know, the, they wouldn't fit that well. But they were supposed to be equal in every way. And it just made people miserable. And, of course, you know, some people liked it. But uh, it, it never did really work that way. And, and if you follow the kibitzim, they've changed quite a bit over the uh, last few decades. Well, the, the whole point of it, if, if, particularly if you go back to, well, it depends on where you want to start. You can start with Plato. You know, Plato, I think, was the first socialist with his uh, republic, where uh, pretty much everybody was equal in that and nobody had any belongings. And... People say some people say that he copied Sparta in that regard, but then you come to the modern socialists with Saint Simon, uh, who got it all started in France in the early 1800s. The whole point was to make everybody equal. The idea was that men are born basically good. It, it goes back to human nature. Our main conflicts go back to human nature. What is your view of human nature? Christians had said up until that point that we're all born with a tendency toward evil. And humans can't control that. That's only something God can change. Only God can change human nature. And we just have to take human nature as it is. Some people are good and some people are bad. And, and it's mostly a choice that they make. Well, then the socialists came along in the roughly around the French Revolution and said, oh, no, humans are born good. And they only turn bad because of oppression. And the greatest oppression is private property. And so if we can just distribute all the wealth evenly, then there will be no more oppression and people will revert to their natural innocence and there will be no more evil. So it was really originally, it was an anti-Christian salvation message. That's how it got started. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's all based on the the idea that if everyone was equal, there would be no more evil. And so they set about trying to make everybody equal. Well, the, the only reason you would want everybody equal is envy. And if you look at the definitions, I, th I think one of the reasons that progressives don't notice 
how envious they are is that they really don't know what envy is. We've made it a joke. You know, it's, it's common for people to say, oh, I envy your job or, or I envy that car that you have. But that's not envy at all. That just means we like what they have and we're giving them a compliment. Mm-hmm. They have no idea what true envy is and how evil it is. And so that's one reason they don't like it. The other reason is that uh, they have defined justice as equality of wealth. And so basically they have they have taken envy and redefined it as justice. And so that's why they don't see that. I get those comments quite a bit from progressives who say, we're not envious, we're trying to trying to have justice. Justice is our main concern. Well, if you look at justice as defined by uh, libertarians or free market people, it's a very different definition from the definition of mm-hmm. progressives and uh, socialists. And, uh, and it's different from the historical definition of justice. It's different from the biblical one. And so what, basically what they have said is uh, envy is no longer evil, it's justice. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't understand it either. Um, but you know, how would you, um, how would you define envy to the, to progressives to kind of help them show, to kind of help show them that this is really what it is? Um, where, where does the, where does the definition of this come in? I think the basic, uh, basic idea is the desire for equality. That is envy. If you won't allow anybody to be different in any way, then that's envy. That's the definition of envy. I'm not sure I've heard many progressives say they want no people to be equal in every way. I think they just want like equality of opportunity or like level playing field or, you know, and anybody who has been disadvantaged unfairly can somehow that that disadvantage is mitigated. Yeah. Well, that's that's actually, I think, the uh, the free market idea of equality is uh, where the system is. Uh, the system is fair. The game is, is played according to the rules. Mm-hmm. But if, if you look at a book like uh, Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Righteous Mind, have yeah. you seen that? Uh, yeah, I've read it. Yeah, that uh, I think he does a good job of. I don't think he ever uses the word envy, but he shows how that uh, uh, so-called progressives are, are just consumed with the idea of equality of outcomes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't. They don't want equal starting points they want equal ending points yeah i don't think he uses the word envy either yeah that that's a great book because it, it describes a lot of things that it, it helps you understand how people think about the world around them and how they're sort of he calls them flavor uh flavor taste receptors or something like that where there's like just different ways in which people are bound to see the world you know as a sense of fairness and justice or as a as a sense of loyalty, things like that. Um, some of them I've drawn a blank on. Yeah. He comes up with three uh, uh, measures of morality on the left, but they're actually just different variations on the, the envy thing. Whereas the uh, on the right, the, the free market people, uh, they actually have differences. And, and the, the concept of justice between the two is very, very different also. So, yeah, I would say... It's of course, as you mentioned earlier, people are not going to say, "Gosh, I'm an envious person." That's why, that's why I'm on the left. That's why I want this and this to happen. <laughs> but, uh, right, right, yeah. 
because they're just not going to say that. So uh, basically, you just have to look at what they do, and this this constant demand for equality in every, equality of outcomes, not equality of opportunity, because free market people are very concerned about uh, equality of opportunity. Yeah, but they demand equality of outcomes. It's like this guy the other day. I was watching TV, and he's he was wanting. Uh, wanting to do away with failing grades and and never give less than a 50% to any student for any reason. Uh, and he, you know, he had his reasons for that. But as Sheck points out, our educational systems in the UK and the US are all based on the idea of producing equal outcomes uh, in the educational system, which is you know something that we got from the socialists. And of course, it's, it's just causing all kinds of distortions in the educational system, like, like this, like this guy who wants to do away with failing grades. <laughs> That's really interesting because now 50 is the new zero. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I remember when I was a kid, they were like, you know what, we're going to we're going to start using purple ink instead of red ink because red just, you know, make triggers people or whatever and makes students. Feel, and I'm like, really? Like, like, I do realize there is something in. To, to the color being used. I mean, there's a reason why red is getting in flame anger, but, but still, still it's like, well, they're just going to, Oh, she purple inked my paper all over, you know, or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it, the, the thing where uh, mainstreaming um, handicapped students, but what we used to call mentally retarded, I'm not sure what the politically correct term is now, but yeah, right. Uh, people who are actually seriously handicapped and can't learn above a certain right. uh, age level. Uh, the the socialist won't give up about it. They insist that these people can be educated, and they're they're spending just ridiculous amounts of money on it. I know that the Tulsa public school system is spending about a third of its budget uh, trying to educate these people because mm-hmm. the uh, the socialists refuse to accept that that people have different abilities, mm-hmm. and uh, some people can be geniuses and others others can't. They refuse to accept that. They think everybody can can accomplish everything. Well, don't you think there's something to be said for looking out for those who are the least advantaged? I mean, are they trying to educate them in the same way they would have educated you and you and me as a kid? Well, that's what in Tulsa, that's what they're trying. Yeah, they are. Uh, they're have very small class sizes, and they're trying. They're trying to teach them the same things. Mm. Same things. Okay. They're they're not getting it obviously, and so they're looking for more and more ways to to figure out how to make them get it. Yeah. They just, just accept that these these kids don't have that ability. Mm-hmm. And it's very expensive. Yeah, so your chapter two is called How Individualism Broke the Envy Barrier. Where does in- individualism come in? I mean, we've kind of talked about it a little bit. You've talked about the West versus, you know, the, the, the East and the Far East um, in terms of, like, the approaches they took societally. Uh, but what does individualism have to do with <laughs> with envy well it's really the opposite of envy uh, I don't know what normal people would say but I realized this after reading Seidentop's book and and also that that research that I had in the book uh, on uh, with the IBM people mm-hmm. uh, the the cultural studies where they have that scale of individualism versus collectivism they weren't talking about collectivism in the sense of socialism, but in the sense that uh, 
you look to the family and to your group that you're a member of to make all the decisions for you. Like when I was in Morocco, I knew young people who were uh, high school age. And when they graduated, they didn't decide what school they were going to or whether they were going to college or not. They didn't decide any of that. Their uncles decided, basically. <laughs> Their uncles and grandparents got together and decided what your career was going to be, which school you were going to go to, and who would pay for it. And the young person had very little input into it. And this was just normal for them. That That's the type of collectivism they were talking about in mm-hmm. the and um, when you measure other cultures on that scale, most of the world is very collectivist in that sense, that all the, all decisions are made by the group. And the individual is not allowed to stand out and, and go his own way and still be as accepted as a member of the group. Whereas uh, in the, the United States, as such an outlier on that scale, it's kind of shocking when you see the graph because mm-hmm. you realize why the rest of the world thinks we're crazy <laughs> because we have such a strong sense of individualism and individualism is the, the opposite of the outcome of envy. Envy makes, tries to make everybody do the same thing at the same time. And whereas individualism allows a lot more freedom for individuals to be different from the group and to be successful without being chopped down and to be admired. It's like uh, uh, one of Francis Schaeffer's, I don't, I don't know if you remember Francis Schaeffer, but he wrote a book, uh, The Mark of a Christian, which is basically about love. But I remember very well one of his illustrations of what Christian love is. And he says it's being happy for, as happy for the success of another person as if it were your own. And I thought that was pretty profound, which is the exact opposite of envy. Envy yeah, right. is hate the success of somebody else. Yeah. Uh, if it's not yours, and particularly if it's somebody close to you. Well, it took uh, Seidentop says in inventing the individual, he says it all began with Paul, but of course Paul got his theology from Jesus. So, but he starts with Paul. And he, he shows how that Paul taught a Christianity where uh, everybody was equal before God and everybody was responsible for themselves to God. And they weren't responsible for anybody else. They were just responsible for themselves before God, which was this was a very new concept in the, the history of mankind and very, very different from the Greek and Roman way of thinking about things where everybody was responsible to the the patriarch of the family and the patriarch of the family decided what everybody would do and what they would be and could even kill them, you know, with impunity if he wanted to. And then uh, Paul comes along and tells these Christians, well, no, you, you're responsible to God uh, for yourself. And so you, know, you can be basically what God wants you to be. God has a call for every person. And, so that, that's where it began, but unfortunately, in the early days of Christianity, the church fathers uh, baptized Greek and Roman philosophy <laughs> on social issues, particularly on economic issues. And so the church was chained down by 
this thinking by Cicero and Aristotle and Plato about economic issues, which all of them condemned commerce and uh, business of any kind, except they, they liked very large scale uh, international trade, like bringing wheat from Egypt to Rome to feed the people. They admired that, you know, that wealthy people could do, but uh, any type of commerce below that, they had nothing but contempt for it. And actually, you know, basically the church fathers told them, look, if you're involved in business, uh, you're condemning your soul to hell because there's no way you can, uh, you can not sin and, and send yourself to hell. And so the, the people in business basically said, well, what can we do? This is our only way we have of making money. So how can we stay out of hell? And so they said, well, uh, if you make money, give most of it to the church and you, know, you can buy your way out of hell that way. And so, so they did for centuries. And so uh, Aristotle and Cicero basically controlled church thinking on economic issues down to about 1500. And then I think that this is just my personal opinion. I think because of the Reformation, a lot of Catholics within the church who saw the need for reform uh, began, began to reform from within the Catholic church and a lot of those guys were at the University of Salamanca and they began to look at things that Aristotle and Cicero had written and they said, you know, we don't think these are right. It doesn't conform with what's in the Bible. It doesn't conform with natural law. And it doesn't conform with what we know about these business people. And so they, they kind of rebelled and uh, did a reformation from within the Catholic Church and came up with a whole new theology of economics which then eventually became the principles of capitalism. But it took 1,500 years for that to happen. Yeah. Two steps forward and three steps back sort of thing. Yeah, that is, some, that is something, uh, how, how, how it works out. Um, one, of the, one of the things we'll kind of end with here is the high versus low tolerance for uncertainty yeah. in various societies. Um, that was, was an interesting perspective to add to this this discussion about individualism uh and envy can you uh, kind of elaborate a little bit i want our listeners to kind of hear what you had there yeah that was uh i'm not sure how to pronounce his name i think it's hofstede h-o-f-s-t-e-d-e that uh, did that original research with the ibm employees and the idea was that uh certain cultures tolerate uncertainty a lot better than other cultures do but what, what it boils down to is the people with, in cultures that don't tolerate uncertainty, they're, not, they're basically non-Christian ones. And it, and it relates to this idea that uh, modern science developed in Western Europe because of Christianity's emphasis on rationalism. We believe in a uh, rational God who does things in such a way that using reason we can discover a lot of what he's done. Only Christ, Christianity is the only religion that has a rational God. All the other gods are, uh, even like Allah in Islam, are very capricious. Mm -hmm. Muslim scholars will say, well, God will choose some really evil people to go to 
paradise and some good people to go to Hades just to show his sovereignty because he's not bound by these rules, same rules that people are bound by. Right. And yeah. so if you live in a culture like that, you can't predict anything. You can't see how, uh, see a cause and effect relationship. Everything is just kind of random. And so those, those people are very, very scared of the future. They don't know what's going to happen. And so they, uh, they can't tolerate uncertainty very well. Whereas in the Christian culture, uh, there's less uncertainty because of our emphasis on reason, but also just, just trust in God and uh, trust in each other. A lot more trust in each other because people behave better. And you can predict what people are going to do a lot better. Cultures. And I think it, it goes back to what uh, Hayek and Mises used to say about uh, good government is general principles that everybody can understand and predict how other people are going to act. Whereas in most of the rest of the world where you don't have that, uh, that type of government, you usually have dictators and whoever the dictator is, whatever he says goes, that's the law. And there's no arguing with it, and it can change from day to day, and it can uh, just depending on the dictator's mood. So there's a great deal of uncertainty, and so that uh, that uncertainty makes people very, very conservative. They're not willing to invest in things that might fail. They try things that uh, they know have worked for centuries. It's like that Tolstoy story about the peasants where. Uh, the the landowner had learned farming methods in the West that could improve productivity dramatically. So he's trying to get the peasants under him in Russia in the 19th century to use these farming methods so that uh, he could improve the output and he could pay them more. But none of the peasants would accept it because their fear of failure, they had never tried it, so they they weren't sure it would work. And the fear of failure to them was you know, starving to death. So they would not try any new methods that would improve the productivity. That's just so foreign to us nowadays. I mean, we just kind of take it for granted that, that innovation is something to be sought after and, and tried, even if you fail. Well, and, and you look at the American, uh, at least among free marketeers, our idea of the entrepreneur who takes a big risk and succeeds, we really admire that. Uh, the rest of the world thinks that's horrible. <laughs> they think we're crazy people. Yeah, right. Well, Roger, thanks for joining us. Um, if Can you give us like the elevator, maybe the tall, long elevator pitch of like, what's the rest of your book about? Where else do you go? Because I mean, this topic, we kind of, we hung out on the whole time and that was on purpose, of course, but uh, God is a capitalist. Uh, it's a provocative title. Uh, what What is kind of the, the big picture of the book here? Well, it, it traces economic history from Israel to the 16th century which is, it goes through it pretty rapidly because not much happened. <laughs> As several authors said, people in 1800 were no better off than people in 5000 BC because technology hadn't changed. Farming methods had changed very, very little. And people in 18th century or 19th century France were not much better off than people from 5000 BC, which is difficult for people to grasp. And, and I think that's that hockey stick uh, per capita GDP growth thing. Yep. I think that's one of the most important things we can get across to people 
because the general idea among most people is that it was just a slow, gradual evolution, that every beginning, from the beginning of history, every following generation was better off than the one before it, which is simply not true. Uh, we know now, as well as we can know from the, the best economic historians, that the world was flat from prehistory to uh, 1600 uh, AD. There was absolutely no progress whatsoever in, in economic terms. And then all of a sudden it took off. And so that, that's center section on the, the history of economics, uh, or, or economic history is pretty short because not much happened. And then it, it, it picks up with the University of Salamanca and how that the scholars there in reforming church teaching on economics, they distilled the principles of capitalism. But the very sad thing is the Catholic countries didn't adopt it. They went the opposite direction. The only country that would adopt their principles was the Dutch Republic. And they implemented them, not because they thought it would make them rich, because nobody had that idea. Everybody thought back then that God determined who, was, who would be rich and who wasn't. They were just implementing these principles because they thought that was the godly thing to do. They did. They became very rich, established the first capitalist nation. Though the Dutch then spread out their principles. They were missionaries to the rest of Western Europe and the, uh, England and the United States. So we really get our principles from the Dutch. And Adam, Adam Smith makes this clear in his book. It's just that most people miss it. So where can people find you online? Do you have a blog, a website? How would they connect with you other than, of course, buying your book on Amazon or somewhere? Uh, how would they connect with you? Well, I, I do have a blog at uh, rdmckinney.blogspot.com. But uh, probably the, the, the main, main place I write is townhallfinance.com. I write usually once a week an article there. But there's also several other good Christian guys that write articles on economics and finance from a Christian perspective there. And uh, so that'd be a good place to go, townhallfinance.com. And, of course, the book's at Amazon. Excellent. Well, Roger, thanks again for joining us. And uh, I'm glad to have a conversation about something that's pretty important to me and I think pretty clear that we need to we need to do a better job of bringing envy into the conversation when we talk about politics because if it's forgotten, it'll just get rolled into seemingly supposedly good things. So I'm glad for your contribution there. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.